Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect with me, Naomi Harlenbachus Volkerson. I'm so excited to bring to you another grad student spotlight conversation. I love doing these because there's just so much energy when I talk to these young investigators. And Katie Thompson was no exception. She's just such a such a delight. I absolutely love talking to her. She's moving to the DC area soon, so I'm absolutely going to take her up on getting some coffee in the future now that we're slowly getting back out there in the world. Though I will admit we just got back from a vacation from Florida and you know we went to Universal Studios and there's just lots of crowds and I'm just you know I'm not normally scared of crowds but with the whole pandemic thing I'm a little like mm, vaccinated boosted thank goodness but it's just really scary in general and it feels weird to kind of go back to doing things the way you used to and I just don't feel like it will ever feel normal to me again uh, but anyways that's enough about me but let me tell you Wizarding World of Harry Potter oh my god goodness it's just so cool i got a little interactive wand i got hermione's wand and i was over there practicing at all the windows and, and i was not very good at it but it was so much fun there was one where like you had to do it in front of a fountain and then the little frog like spit out water and i i was successful at that one that was so much fun i was just geeking out the whole time i absolutely loved it um well where was i oh <laughs> my conversation with katie absolutely loved it we talked a lot about how the world has all of these unnecessary, ridiculous expectations about our bodies changing. And it, there's just this notion that your body's not supposed to change because you hear it all the time. You know, you, we talk about it with Katie a lot. Like you go to the grocery store and you have, you see those magazines, like get your baby body back, get your summer body ready. And it's just like, you know what? We're growing adults. We're all going to change at some point and that's okay. So the messaging around how our bodies are really has to change. Uh, so we talk a lot about that and all of her work with perinatal women, um, older women, and their, how they view their their bodies and their sense of body image, as well as people entering menopause and, and how that can kind of lend itself to eating disorders and potentially how it could inform eating disorder therapies and, and the like. So she's really doing some groundbreaking stuff. And I just absolutely am so thankful for her and everything she's doing and can't wait to see what she's going to do next. So without further ado, my conversation with Katie Thompson. Okay, we are here with Katie Thompson. I'm so excited to talk to you and welcome to the podcast. So Thank let's start off so with it. Yeah, let's uh, start off with an easy question. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, your education, your current position. Oh, and I have to ask a selfish question. Have you recovered from the UNC lost to Kansas? <laughs> For listeners, she is now covering her eyes in complete you, horror. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I know, can't hate tell me. you. I, are you a Kansas fan? Do I need to no, start there? With, no, no, okay. no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. Uh, I'm a UK fan. We lost in the first round. So oh, like yeah. you can, you can last the whole time. My sister actually uh, just graduated from UNC. Uh, oh, congrats. So, so she was, she was there. She was like on Franklin street, like partying yep. it up and all of that. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> Yes. So I've been around at UNC long enough that I was there when we won the championship in 2017, um, which was my first year of grad school. And it was oh, like the fun. most amazing thing. And everyone was like, this will never happen again. Enjoy it. And we rushed Franklin and it was just like a once in a lifetime thing. And then so to make it to the tournament this year again, especially, you know, first real season after Roy was gone and everyone, it was a little rocky to start and we finally made it. And then to get the schedule and find out that we were going to be playing Duke in the final four was this huge, like the tension on campus walking around that day was massive. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. And then, you know, we, we go on and, and win that game. And I think to a lot of UNC fans, like that felt like the championship game that felt uh, like, okay, the tournament's over. We did the biggest part. And so right. then we show up to the actual championship game. Um, and it, it, yeah, it was a, it was a brutal thing to watch, but, um, you know, 
they'll be back at it. Oh, lost yeah. in no, the finals before. So exactly. yeah. it's such a good team though. That was, it was a fun tournament to watch, but I mean, I was rooting for you. My sister goes there and then also I hate Duke obviously. So, I mean, yeah. you're good there, but ugh, what a, that's March madness for you. <laughs> oh yeah. The funny thing is that I come from a long line of blue devils, my dad, my oh. grandparents, my uncle. So in, in March, whenever tournament season starts, our family chat thread gets very colorful. So um, colorful. Yes. Yeah. We, we take it very seriously in our household. Of course. It's <laughs> basketball. It's crazy. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. But anyways, like super sidebar. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get yeah. back to you and who you are. Yeah. So um, my name is Katie. Yes, obviously I'm at UNC. Um, I am a sixth year PhD candidate in clinical psychology. And so, um, and the way our program works is that your first five years generally are dedicated towards the actual doctorate. And then the sixth year is the equivalent of like a medical residency. Um, so I am currently at the school of medicine this year um, in the psychiatry department doing clinical work. Um, so I've defended the dissertation, done all of that stuff. Grad school portion is, is almost over and, and just working on this last piece. Wow, so, that's, ama- yeah. that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it is six long years. And to only have, my gosh, like three more months left because I'll finish in August up this year. Um, so that is what I'm doing right now. I originally went to... George Washington University in DC um, and was a psych major before that and grew up in Los Angeles going back even further. So yeah. Wow. You like both coasts too. Yes. I've kind of zigzagged across the coast back and forth a lot. So that's crazy. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I ask a lot of my guests this questions, but like what got you started in eating disorder research? Like, so you say you were an undergrad psychology major. Did you get that interest there or was it like later? I think, so I think my interest actually, I mean, not intentionally or not anything that I was aware of probably started before that. So I I was born in, and grew up for the first 14 years of my life in Atlanta, in Georgia. And then we moved to Los Angeles when I was 14 because my dad got a new job and um, we moved. And that moving from Atlanta to Los Angeles at age 14 is the biggest culture shock I could have ever imagined. Okay. I was going to um, say. <laughs> yes, yes. And it was a huge transition. And I think just... It, there were people often talk about how Los Angeles feels a little bit like a bubble. Um, and there are definitely moments of, the, of that. And I, looking back, loved my time in LA, but it, there's a lot of just attention and focus and talk about how people look and plastic surgery, like things that were so not on my radar um, beforehand that suddenly just going to high school and, and being around just talk of that was something that I was aware of some of the sociocultural pressures and things like that. Um, but I don't think it really hit me in a like, hey, I want to study eating disorders way until college. Um, I was a psych major. I had was doing research in, in some labs that were looking at like exercise behaviors, um, which was interesting to me, but definitely wasn't something that really kind of captured my spark, so to speak. But um, I was in, I joined a sorority in college. Um, and I think that was where a lot of my interests kind of merged was that I was really aware of and just saw and lived firsthand like so many stereotypes and pressures to look certain ways and to have your hair dyed certain ways and to all be wearing the same thing and and in that environment we there were several girls in my chapter who had eating disorders either developed in college or or came in before and so that was the first time that I was very aware of it and it was in my face like that um and so it just kind of became something really natural for me to say, hey, I'm, I'm living this, so to speak, yeah. and studying this. How can I kind of merge some of the things? So I, that was kind of how I got started. Wow. I mean, so like you were really exposed to it from a pretty young age. So like the stereotype is kind of true then about LA and the plastic surgery and everyone's fixated on their looks. 
I mean, I think there are certainly pockets of it. it I mm-hmm. don't mean to say that like everyone is like that. Like I, you know, high school was high school. I sure everyone has their own interests and things like that. And you find a group of friends and that's exactly what I did. And it, it was great. And yeah. I still talk with many of them and my parents still live there and it's amazing. Um, but there's just way more discussion, I think, and knowledge about it, that it wasn't even on my radar beforehand. And suddenly, like, I just remember growing up having like kids talk about, oh yeah, my parents got, my mom got new boobs or, you know, so-and-so is getting a nose job for her 16th. And it was like, what? Like that was something that wasn't even something that I was thinking about beforehand. So that was kind of the environment. Gotcha. Yeah. And it it showed like your early experiences can really shape your later life and development. That's, that's crazy. Um, So, okay, let's get into some of your published work because you are very well published already and you're not even done with graduate school. So it's super impressive. Um, You published a paper earlier this year that looks at self-oriented comparison among postpartum women. And I thought that was such a unique paper topic. And I was like, I really want to hear all about this, this work. And first, can you explain what self-oriented comparison even is and, and the, the link between that and eating disorders? Yes, absolutely. So this was actually part of my dissertation that I um, looked at this study because we were looking at a lot of different sociocultural factors um, that impact body image, eating behaviors, disordered eating um, in the perinatal period. Um, And when I was doing my comprehensive exams before I got to my dissertation, I was doing this review paper. Um, And one of the things that I had found in doing my review of just body image and eating disorders during the perinatal period Uh was a lot of qualitative literature showing that women are talking about this idea of bouncing back a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And that there's a lot of emphasis on what my expectations are before I was pregnant, what my expectations are after I've given birth about how am I going to look? Um, I remember reading one study in one of the, um, participants in that study mentioned that they had brought their like pre-pregnancy genes to the hospital because they thought as soon as they gave birth, they were just going to walk right out of the hospital at the exact same body shape and weight that they had been previously. Um, And so it really kind of got me thinking about this like idea. And we talk all the time a little bit about like bouncing back. What does that mean? Getting your pre-baby body back. Um, But there really wasn't anything outside of some of the qualitative literature that was looking at this in relation to eating disorders in research. Um, And the closest thing I could find was really this like social comparison field um, where we are thinking about how we as an individual kind of gauge and judge myself in reference to some other standard ideal and most commonly in eating disorders, another person. Um, And there's tons of research out there on body comparison and eating disorders. Um, But all of that research is focused on kind of this underlying assumption that we're comparing ourselves to someone else, whether it's supermodels or friends or celebrities, you know, whatever it is, it's someone else. And so this idea of self-oriented comparison really came around from kind of merging some of the qualitative literature that I was looking at with social comparison theory that rather than comparing ourselves to someone else, what if postpartum women are telling us that they're comparing their bodies to the way it used to be? So that's that self-oriented piece themselves, actually. Yeah. And so what did, what did you find? Like, what were the overall trends and and how many did you survey women or did you just like, how did you go about studying that? Yeah. So multiple different ways. Um, We started just by doing a, a large survey and my first goal was just to figure out like, Hey, is this quantitatively something that women postpartum women after they give birth are doing and the answer is yes absolutely they're they're doing this um my next question was how like how does this compare to some of the other standard sources of comparison so are they comparing themselves more to themselves 
or are they comparing themselves more to models and celebrities or yeah. peers? Um, and what we found was that actually, no, the number one source of comparison for postpartum women was themselves, was their pre-pregnant self. Um, we also then looked at, okay, now that we know that they're comparing themselves to themselves the most, what association does that have with a whole host of eating disorder behaviors and cognitions. And so we looked at kind of weight and shape concerns, but, and we also looked at binge eating, restrictive dieting. Um, what else we looked at like a broad range of just different eating pathologies, um, emotional eating, things like that. And the answer was far and away that this idea about the self-oriented comparison um, was more strongly associated with the eating disorder symptoms that we looked at than some of the other sources. So not only is it the most common type of comparison that these postpartum women are engaging in, but it's actually more strongly associated with the eating disorder symptoms than some of the previously studied ones that we have been looking at. And so that was all done via survey. Um, and it was cross-sectional. So we were just kind of looking at regression models um, and things like that. And we're really interested in, in kind of taking it one step further and seeing, can we show this experimentally in some way? Um, and so there was a second kind of pilot study that I did as part of my dissertation as well, where we asked women to engage in kind of a self-reflective writing exercise where it was kind of based off of social psychology research. Um, they were asked to just kind of write open-ended questions about how their body had changed since giving birth, their weight, parts of their body that they liked, parts of their body that they didn't like, um, things like that. And then we looked at pre-post measures of body dissatisfaction. Um, and so what we found was that they were definitely engaging in more self-oriented comparison in that experimental um, study. We were looking at a comparison between that the like self-oriented writing condition versus our control condition where we had women just write about how their sleep patterns had changed. And we had originally chosen sleep because we thought it would be relatively neutral. Um, and after doing this study, we found that there were no differences between this, the body condi comparison condition and the sleep comparison condition. Oh. Um, which surprised us a lot. But then we were talking with some of the participants as like a debriefing after they participated. And a lot of them were saying that, well, actually sleep is a little bit more evocative than you would have thought. Um, like postpartum women don't get a lot of sleep. Having a baby right. um, really disrupts regular sleep patterns. Even just being pregnant associated with physical pain and discomfort, let alone like waking up in the middle of the night, feeding regularly, things like yeah. that, that it may have just been a little too evocative of a control condition. Yeah. Um, so that, that was kind of one of the things that we've been thinking about is, is how do we take this into a next step to figure out sure. not just cross-sectionally what we're showing, but what does this look like in practice? Yeah, yeah. And you may not know the answer to this, but are there women that maybe before being pregnant were completely normal and had a normal sense of self and body image, but then after pregnancy and postpartum, they then developed an eating disorder or started, you know, having struggles with with those thoughts and of how they see themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is yes. Um, it's a little bit of that and the idea that maybe these women beforehand had some kind of sub-threshold body dissatisfaction, um, kind of low self-esteem, things mm -hmm. like that, that we know are risk factors for eating disorders. And then they become pregnant, they give birth. Coupled with all of this, it's kind of just an exacerbation of some of the really yeah. underlying factors. Um and then there are women who had eating disorders, like full threshold eating disorders, who um, is also just a really unique experience um, yeah. being pregnant and things like that. So the answer is yes. It, clinically speaking, we haven't looked at this in the research yet. Um, that's one of the things I would love to do is some kind of longitudinal study like that, looking um, 
more at how some of these expectations about what my body is going to look like change throughout pregnancy and and what impact that has on my eating disorder. Um, But clinically speaking, yes, I've definitely worked with patients who beforehand were functioning pretty typically um, wouldn't necessarily screen into any kind of eating disorder risk factor concern, um, but came in with very different expectations from what their pregnancy and perinatal experience actually turned out to be. So then like taking all of that information, and I know it's still like a work in progress, figuring out like all the data and the trends, but like, how do we we obviously need a culture change. We obviously need to stop this like nonsense of like how to bounce back to pre-baby body weight in two months and all of that. Um, but so what's your recommendation on, on how to move forward and, and possibly help prevent these alarming trends from becoming more normal? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that we can do and hopefully one of the most easiest and straightforward is just like education about what what does a pregnant body look like? What changes are completely normal during pregnancy? And realistically, what changes stick around after postpartum? Um, Because I think like going back to that example about that woman who brought genes, like her pre-pregnancy genes to the hospital after giving birth, like there's a huge disconnect there between even just in college students, like what their expectation is about like one day becoming pregnant. Um, We learn, and I think, you know, I did middle school and high school in California as we were talking about. And so I have vivid memories of health education, sex ed and things like that and learning very um, directly um, a lot of the changes that girls could expect during puberty. Like these are the impact that puberty and going through hormones will have on a developing female body. And so that's something we're taught in school. Yeah. We're not taught what happens during pregnancy. We're not taught what happens after puberty. And so for a lot of time, it's like, oh, well, puberty is the time where my body's going to change. But after that, it'll just stay the same. Right. Um, and, and so I think having those discussions with women, letting them know that this is completely normal and, and oftentimes healthy um, sign of, of how to be pregnant and grow a human being inside of you and, and all of the amazingly just magnificent things that the human body does. And yet we don't talk about them at all. And so when they happen, it's a huge shock and adjustment. That's such a good point. Um, I think having these open conversations in general about body image and, and how you don't have to stay the same regardless, like your body's going to change. You're, you're, you're going through life and, and phases of, of development. Like it happens and it's not supposed to be this robot machine that just stays stagnant the entire time. So I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think a lot of women probably need and want to hear that, but they just feel like, Oh, but that's not what I've been told my whole life, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, okay, so switching gears a little bit, you have an older paper that touches on a topic we actually touched on um, in, a, in a way in, in, a po- in a podcast episode earlier, and that's disordered eating behaviors among older women. Um, which I love that topic because there is this misconception that eating disorders and disordered eating is only in teens and and women and only white people. And that's just not the case. So in your study, you evaluated things like maladaptive perfectionism, appearance-related criticism, body dissatisfaction, and you looked at women aged 65 to 90. So can you tell us a little bit more about this study and like what prompted you to do it in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So this study was actually something that was ongoing in my advisor's lab when I started grad school. They were in the middle of data collection um, and was actually like the undergrad RA's idea. So um, our lab every couple of years would would kind of pull the undergrads and say, hey, what hot topics are going on right now? What do you guys want to know and and study? And and this research project came out of that um, discussion. So 
I wish I could take credit for this study, but um, I cannot. <laughs> but this study broadly looked at kind of transgenerational um, factors that contributed to body image and eating disorders. So we looked at a cohort of young ad- of college, college females, um, their mothers, and then their maternal grandmothers. Um, and so this study in particular came from that grandmother cohort. Um, and so that was something that was, I mean, I, as we were talking a little bit about like the perinatal population, I, I'm really, and as you just mentioned as well, I'm really interested in understanding broadly how women's bodies change throughout the whole lifespan. Um, and, and if we follow that assumption that we just talked about, that puberty is not the only time that a female body is going to change, um, let's look at kind of another end of the spectrum. And here we have this amazing sample um, of women 60 to 90. Um, and so that was one of the things that we wanted to look at. When we started doing some of the lit review for that paper, I don't know if this would shock anybody, um, but there was very little research out there. Um, <laughs> Shocking. Right, right, exactly. Um, and so our, our aims quickly became, let's start with the basics here right. about just trying to understand what does body image and disordered eating look like in this population? Yeah. What are some of the prevalence rates that we're seeing and things like that? Um, and in this sample, what we had found was that nearly 6% of our participants um, would have screened positive for a suspected eating disorder. So it was a survey study and there was no clinical diagnostic um, assessment done, but based off of the clinical cutoffs from some of the self-report questionnaires, 6%, which is way higher than we had anticipated. Um, That's about half of like what some of the prevalence rates suggest in general for young adults. If you just look at like college students. Um, So it is less, but 6% is still way more than even some of the prior data was suggesting. the data before this study that we had done was about 10 or 15 years before that. And it was suggesting maybe two to 3%. Um, so it, I think that was one of the things that we found that we were just surprised by in this data. Um, I think another thing that we were surprised by was the range of um, severities for some of the symptoms that we were looking at we compared the the data that we were getting in this study to just some of the norms that we have that are really well established in the young adult adolescent populations. Mm-hmm. Again, maybe not a shocker to anybody, but there are no norms for people over the age of 65. <laughs> um, so we don't, we had no idea what to compare or how to like try to make sense and, and place some of the findings that we were getting. And so we found that, yes, the, the older sample that we were looking at here was endorsing every single one of the eating disorder symptoms that we looked at. Um, the thing that we did notice was that the severity was just slightly less than some of the young adult adolescent populations that we do have norms for. Um, so we, we just were really, I think, surprised by some of these findings. Yeah. Um, but also, I think it's just so important that we take off the glasses that tell us that eating disorders are only applicable to young white adolescent females um, or college students and, and really recognize that it doesn't just end as soon as you graduate college. These things are um, things that really impact the lives and the health and relationships and and all of that for many, many years beyond. Exactly. A hundred percent. And to that end, have you looked at or are you currently looking at or planning to look at maybe breaking that down into like the the racial and ethnic the, yeah, the the trends in those populations, as well as perhaps like males, if you looked at males or the transgender population, like I, I would love to see that data as well, because we have a lot on, on females, but not so much on others. 
Yes. So as very little as there has been done on um, adults 65 and plus on women, there's been nothing done on on males um, or on gender minority individuals at all. So we know nothing about um, that population in any way. Um, There's some data looking at racial and ethnic differences, but it's so preliminary um, just because a lot of the sample sizes are really small. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the, even when you look at like subgroups, um, if you're trying to like, like for our population or the sample for this study, um, I think the vast majority of the sample identified as Caucasian white, um, non-Hispanic. And that primarily is a nature of geography about the population that we were studying given that where we are, but, um, yeah, I, I, we need a lot more research um, on all of this stuff because it is so interesting and a lot of it is surprising to what we Mm. may have thought. And we can't make assumptions about what these symptoms and and how these clinical things impact different populations. Yeah. And from a policy perspective, because I now work in research and science policy. And so I'm wondering like, if like NIH should, which is the largest biomedical funding agency, it funds all kinds of research, including, you know, mental health, there's an entire Institute on it. They should like head up an entire like initiative that like calls for the collection of all of this information. So like it's collected across the U S and it's not on the onus of individual researchers to try and collect this information and then piecemeal it together to figure it out. I feel like it needs to come from the top down. So from a policy perspective, that should be an initiative that they take up, but you know, you know, what, what do I know? They, they could be thinking of doing that, but I think that would be a great, go a long way to helping researchers then figure out the health implications and, and future directions of eating disorder treatment. Yeah. And I, I think that would be amazing. Um, what you're talking about, we have like for adolescents, there's like the NHANES data set, right. And Uh I'm not saying that like, even that has some limitations when it comes to including like full spectrum of eating disorder questions and assessments, but there's nothing, at least to my knowledge, that goes kind of beyond, I think those cohorts now are probably about my age, um, maybe a little bit older, but there's certainly nothing in terms of like the 65 plus range, right, um, right. which is especially concerning given that we have an aging population and we have the baby boomer boomers who are right hitting this mark. Um yeah. And a huge portion of our population that we are not prepared for and, and don't understand. Exactly. That is mind boggling. So like going to another age group, then you've also looked at middle-aged women and you've looked at attitudes on, on body image among women in this age group. And you looked at it from the lens of menopause status, which I found completely fascinating. So why was it important for you to, to look at it from, from that perspective? Yeah, I think um, in a similar vein to some some of my perinatal stuff that I was thinking about, um, you know, periods that are analogous to puberty in that sense. About it's like we know that puberty biologically, hormonally, socially, psychologically is this huge. Um, just kind of window of vulnerability for a lot of mental health concerns for teens. Um, Are there any other kind of analogous periods like that if we expand throughout the lifespan? Um, And research shows, yes, that menopause for women um, is certainly one of those periods that has been shown. There's a whole body of research looking at kind of the hormonal changes in menopause and the relation to mood and anxiety disorders. Mm. Um, Perimenopausal depression is a huge field of research that we see. And so thinking about like, hey, if they're seeing that some of the mood changes during menopause are driven hormonally. And we know that some of those hormonal factors are also associated with body image, binge eating, disordered eating, things like that. What's going on from an eating disorder perspective during menopause as well. Um, And so that's where that study kind of came about that 
this study was also a survey study. And so we didn't have any biomarkers to be able to look at, but they did self-report menopausal status, which um, was how we kind of started looking a little bit at some of these data and to figure out we were comparing pre-menopausal women. So we were looking, I think this study, we looked at like 40 to 65. So that was the age that we kind of capped it. And then within that, women were divided based off of self-report about whether they were pre-menopausal, which would be, they're just menstruating what is typical for them. Um, And then there's perimenopausal, which is they've started to experience irregularities in their menstrual cycle um, and regular, like timing, but that they are still getting a menstrual period. Um, and so then postmenopausal is I have not had a menstrual period for at least 12 months. Um, and so yeah. that's what's considered postmenopausal. So what did you find among those women and among the different groups too? Did it vary? Yeah, so- We were looking um, specifically at some moderators to try to figure out who may be most at risk during this time. There's some data showing that perimenopause, that period in particular, Mm -hmm. excuse me, because of all the hormone fluctuations, that it's not necessarily having high levels of estradiol or progesterone or being low in that, but it's the rapid cycling back and forth that's actually the driver of the mood changes and binge eating. And in the same way that we see like across a menstrual cycle, like it just, if you just take the menstrual phase that you'll see it's kind of, it's that similar change, um, same kind of biological, biological mechanism. Um, and so we were focusing primarily on like that perimenopausal group thinking that they were going to be reporting higher levels of disordered eating. Um, and then the moderators that we were looking at specifically was aging anxiety. So this idea about how nervous are you socially? Um, what does getting older mean to you? Do you have worries about the negative impact that aging is going to have on your physical appearance and things like that? Um, because we do know that menopause has in a similar way to the perinatal period, um, changes to a woman's body composition, um, shape and weight and things like that. Also something we don't talk about. Um, Right. I I give talks on menopause sometimes and I can always see in the room, like the light bulb moment going off for some people as they're listening and they're like, wait, what? As I'm like, these are things that are associated. We talk about hot flashes. Sure. But we don't talk about how there's this redistribution of body weight. There's an increase in fat mass there's a decrease in metabolism and all of this stuff. So um, that's another thing that we need more education on. But oh, what, for sure, <laughs> what we found in the study was that for women um, who were perimenopausal, um, actually being having low aging anxiety was associated with greater disordered eating, which was the really? exact opposite of what we had. Yeah, it was the that our mind was kind of like, wait, what? Um, Exact opposite of what we thought. We thought it would be high Mm. aging anxiety. Um, And in thinking about it more, I kind of think that it goes back to this idea about expectations and Mm. that maybe the women who have high aging anxiety, who are already thinking about my body's going to change. I'm going to look older. I'm going to have more wrinkles, all of these things. If that's already causing them anxiety and they don't like how that's going to impact their physical appearance, that they're already engaging in some disordered eating and have low body image, but that it's the women who don't, who aren't thinking about that, who don't Mm -hmm. have aging anxiety and are just like, whatever, that suddenly the perimenopause period comes for them. And it's a little bit of a shock. And so now they're like, this is what's happening to my body and are trying to do something to control it in some way. Right. Right. To correct and try and get back to what they were before. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, there's just this societal pressure that you have to look and be a certain way all the time and that you should be ashamed in a way of your body changing. And I just, I hate that stigma, but I don't, it's going to take a concerted, effort from, you know, like you said, we need more education from researchers and, and things like that to really help promote 
body positivity and just more awareness of what our bodies actually are and how they function. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's just, we have an entire anti-aging industry. Yes. Um, from skincare to beauty to, you know, just on the cover of, of photo magazines and things like that with celebrities about how to look 10 years younger. Like that is on every magazine in the grocery store that you're walking past. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, coming to terms with the idea that this is surrounding us. And if that's the expectation of what we think a 40, 50, 60 year old individual is supposed to look like, my expectations are going to be very different from what I'm actually going through. Exactly. I will say when the pandemic hit um, and we switched to having our groceries delivered, which is so, so convenient because I saved so much time just getting them delivered. Um, Love it. It's, it's really helped my mental health too, because then I don't see those magazines on the, in the checkout and I don't, the like the, pl- it's just plastered in my face all the time. So like, I haven't been to a grocery store in forever because I can just get it on my doorstep. Um, you still have social media, of course, but you can mute people or choose not to follow certain people and tailor it to what you need. But yeah, that's, that's been really helpful. And I just hate those magazines. So, and they're just so, I mean, the fact that they're there, that you have to walk past them in a grocery store of all places while you're food shopping, like just, Oh, it's every kind of eating disorder (laughs) professionals nightmare. Just thinking about forcing everyone to look at that when we walk past it. It's very triggering sometimes. Oh, it's, it's just awful. Um, so that's a lot. I just love your research is just so fascinating. And I, I loved everything that you have been working on. I can't just wait to see what, what else you do next, but I want to like get away from the technical stuff a little bit and, t- and ask you a little bit more about your experience in your department as a PhD student. And now as part of the medical school, like overall, like, what did you like about it? What did you dislike? Cause academia does get a pretty bad rap, but like, what what were some things that you think could be improved or something that you absolutely love? Like, I'm just curious of other people's experience. Yeah, um, I feel very fortunate and I um, have conversations with my peers all the time who've come from different programs, who are in different programs that I feel like the experience of a PhD student, even within the same field, like clinical psychology, varies drastically. Um, Scary. It's terrifying. You are absolutely right. Just totally depending on not even like the program, but I feel like the way academia is structured that everything hinges on your PI. Like yes. your, your success, your sink or swim, everything hinges on that person um, and your relationship with them. Yeah. And I feel so incredibly fortunate that I have had just amazing mentors who supported me when, you know, personal things happen in grad school because it's six years and life happens in six life years. You happens. don't you don't put your life on hold to go to grad school. Right. And, um, to help me really balance, you know, my professional goals and, um, make sure that I was meeting milestones and staying on track while also making sure that I had balance outside of grad school. Um, and I think it, yeah, it's, I have a lot of opinions on, on academia and I, there's some pros and cons. Exactly. It is, there's a lot that needs to change um, just systemically. Um, mm. Just there's a huge barrier to entry. There's a huge cost and burden that falls on students, um, not just finan- like literally financially, of course, but I think there's just so much more that we're just starting to talk about, I think, yeah. because of the pandemic in a way. Yeah. Um, but that has gone like ignored or even encouraged some yeah. for so long um, beforehand. I think that's probably one of the biggest things to me that needs to change about academia is just like I, finances, um, yeah. not just when it comes to stipends, but 
the amount of stuff that like falls on grad students to go to conferences to um, take, you know, a pay cut for four, five, six years, um, just kind of like general loss of income, thinking about how much my friends who didn't go to grad school or who are doing other Mm -hmm. things are making versus how much I'm making now. Um, I'm 30 years old and I've never had a 401k. Like problem. That's a huge problem. Um, And that just sets people up. I mean, it sets people up to be like a certain path. Um, But it also means that you can only recruit people who can make that happen. Exactly. Exactly. And, And I feel incredibly privileged. And to know that I was able to make this decision and know that I have a partner, I have family who can help support me while I go through this Mm. because it's not, it's not something that someone can do individually. Mm. Um, And that I think is probably one of the biggest things that I think needs to change is that we're, we're just gatekeeping from the beginning about who can even attempt this journey, regardless of whether they have the skills or the interest or the knowledge or any of that. And, and we're missing out on some incredible people who I have no doubt would be changing the field if they could just get access. And so I think that's one of the biggest things to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think just now, I mean, it's just unbelievable to me that there are now stipends or separate awards for childcare (laughs) provisions, you know, like that is just now a thing. It used to not be. And there is a certain amount, again, it's, it's not a whole lot, but it's a step in the right direction, but that's just now happening. And then people that, you know, that only perhaps want to get a master's for certain fields or for certain jobs, maybe a master's is the better fit and you don't have to go get a PhD, but a master's will put you into so much debt. And so then, like you said, that's only the people that are actually wealthy and well off can actually go and get a master's. So you're only getting a certain portion of the American population. So I just, yeah, the discrepancies and inequities built into the system is a huge problem. Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons that I ironically didn't do the master's program was because I wouldn't have been able to take on Afford it. all of that debt. And, right. and so to me, one of the huge pros of the PhD program was that it was going to be funded for me. So I right. didn't have to take on um, additional student loans. Right. Right. And I took, cause I came into the lab and I was very, so I saw, I came in right when, I don't know if you remember when sequestration hit in 2013 yes. and age across the board cut. And so I had friends in different departments that were like, my lab is shutting down. I have to find a new lab. And they like are halfway through their, their programs. And it was just a nightmare. And I was like, you know what, this is going to happen again. And I don't know if this is a sustainable career path for me, what should I do? And I had to have that conversation with my mentor. Thankfully, he was supportive of me transitioning to science policy and he helped me go down that path. But, and so at one point I took three months off after I defended my comprehensive exam and I was able to go to DC and get an internship and kind of figure out if that's the career path I wanted to go and then go back and and finish my dissertation. But they were, there was a huge kerfuffle with the university of whether or not they could allow me to keep my stipend through those three months. I couldn't afford to live in DC for three months. You know, they would pay me as the internship a little bit, but I needed the additional stipend to keep going. And my PI had to fight for me and say, this is professional development for my student. She has to have this money. Like, I know she won't be in the lab, but she has to have this money. So it's things like that, that I'm sure, you know, I'm not the only one. It's just really limiting the pool of people that you're getting and the opportunities that they can do while they're in grad school. And that just makes me so sad and mad. (laughs) It it absolutely is. And, And the unfortunate reality is that stories like yours are now becoming the norm and that it used to be that it was like, oh, that's an exception, right? Like you come here, we're going to pay you. You're going to be able to do your research. It's going to be amazing. You're going to love academia. You're going to be committed here forever. And you're actually going to become a professor and right. And all that, right. Tenure, don't worry (laughs) about it. Right. And I, I have so many 
like mentors and supervisors who I've worked with who, you know, are, I guess, like two academic generations above me, I would say. And, and they're like, oh my gosh, I, this is, I would not have survived now um, in the same way because of issues like that. Like it's just, there's, yeah, everything is driven as a whole world is to some extent by money and finances. Um, but I think academia pretends like it doesn't. I love that. It's so true though. It's so true. It's like, no, we're the good guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And no. it's like, come here for knowledge and be a martyr and do your right. most amazing research. And we're not going to pay you um, right. to do the work, but you just have to demonstrate that you're so committed and believe in this higher cause. Um, and it's, it's a trap sometimes. So. No, I, I agree with you. So then speaking of, of academia, what are your plans after you graduate then? Like, have you thought that far? Cause that's coming up soon, right? It is. Yeah. So I will um, officially have the stamp, the PhD in August. Um, and exciting. I know, I know. I'm actually going to be heading up to the DC area. I have a postdoc fellowship lined up. Um, and so I'm going to be at um, the Uniform Services University at Walter Reed. Okay. Um, so, well, then yeah. you and I, we have to get together then. Like now, like, like get coffee or something. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, my uh, fiance has lived up there for um, the last year because Aww. he works up there. And so I'm so excited to be getting back up there. Of course, we both went to college there. So I love DC in general. But um, the lab I'm going to be working at does, um, they study um, cardiovascular um, outcomes in military families. So um, not just mm. service members, but also um, dependents, children, partners, things like that. Um, and do a lot of prevention work when it comes to binge eating, obesity, things like that. Um, so that's what I'll be headed up to go do. And I'm very excited. That's so exciting. I'm thrilled for you. Like that's, and I think it's not too far. It's like what a four, four hours from you about, no, it's really not that bad. Um, if it's just me driving by myself, I can make it in four. I've got a dog. And so we have to make frequent stops. Yes, for her. I know and that. It, <laughs> it takes like four and a half. And then, of course, yeah. there's the traffic that always happens around Quantico. And that slows us down. So. Oh, my gosh. Because I like we we just went to UNC for my sister's graduation. And like the drive from here to Richmond is just mm-hmm. unbearable unbearable yeah. but then to Durham yeah. it's fine but it's like yeah. oh my gosh I don't understand yeah. so yeah but oh, so that's so exciting I'm so excited for you and I can't wait to see what you'll do what you'll do after that um and so I know like I feel like I can talk to you for hours and we're um already like almost an hour into this um so I'll ask one more question and it's a two-parter so I'm kind of cheating um but Number one, what is your advice for someone out there that wants to pursue now that we've really bashed graduate school? <laughs> I know. I love it. Here's the thing. I, I also recognize that I have dedicated six years of my life to this. <laughs> so I do actually feel incredibly fortunate and thankful. And I have had an amazing time in grad school, lifelong friends, um, and it's just been amazing training. So I do love it not to just bash on all the awful things. (laughs) It's so easy to point out the bad, but like for those listening that maybe do want to go that route and maybe pursue like clinical psychology, like you, like, but maybe they're feeling kind of intimidated or defeated from the whole process. Like what's your advice? What you, if you could go back and do it again, what would you do differently? Oh my goodness. Um, I think, I think the best advice that I could give someone who's just starting out or trying to figure it out. I, so I applied twice um, to grad school and I did not get in the first time I applied my senior year of college. Um, And I, gosh, I probably applied, I think I applied to like 14 different programs Mm. all over the place in terms of topics and research interests. Cause I just didn't really know what I wanted to do and didn't have a, have a full grasp on it yet. Um, 
got one interview and no offers. Um, and then I was like, all right, well, I need to, to take some time and figure out what I want to do. So I, I worked as a research coordinator actually at the NIH um, for two years and then reapplied. And that was amazing. Um, just training experience and to really help me figure out what it is I wanted out of grad school, yeah. both in terms of topic interests and whatnot. And so I think the greatest piece of advice that I think I ever got was that nobody is going to like give you no one's going to make things happen for you unless you kind of like ask for it um and my experience is that I've been like I said incredibly fortunate that all of my supervisors and mentors even before grad school are like what what do you want where do you see yourself how like how can we help you make this happen but I think I needed to have that conversation with myself about what, what do I want? Mm -hmm. Um, And then trying to figure out like, okay, now that I know I want to go to grad school, I want to get the PhD. I want to study eating disorders and and do the research side. Like it it takes so much, but I would say, I don't know if it's determination or a little bit of fearlessness, maybe about just like cold emailing people and trying to figure things out, advocating for yourself. Um, I think nobody, it's, it's very different than college or at least my experience in college where like when I was applying to college, I had, there were college counselors at my high school who were like, this is what you need to get together. And this is your packet. And this is how you make it happen. A roadmap. Yeah. Right. Here's your roadmap. There is no roadmap for grad school. And that's the thing that I struggled with so hard that I just didn't have the first time I applied to grad school. And so I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice is like, take some time, figure out what you want and then start emailing, contacting people until you find someone who's going to help you make that roadmap because you can't do it alone. You're going to need someone to help give you a boost in some way. Um, And don't take no for an answer. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I did a lot of cold emailing and it worked and you'll find that a lot of people, especially in the research field are super helpful. And they'll be like, yeah, I have 30 minutes if you want to chat. And so informational interviews are really great just to kind of get a a lay of the land. If you're just kind of curious about a certain type of research and a certain lab. And I think, I think that's great advice. Um, So the second, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go for it. I was just going to like transition to the second part of my question was what is your advice to someone out there listening that needs help for like an eating disorder or disordered eating? And maybe they're just now going through menopause and they are going through or pregnancy and they're going through these bodily changes and they feel ashamed of themselves and are tempted to kind of counteract the bodily functions by, by doing something more damaging, like disordered eating or something like that. And so what's your advice? Like maybe they want help. Um, they don't know how, um, and don't know the first step. So what's good advice for that? Yeah, I think first and foremost, just if anyone is listening to this and with that experience, like, please know you are not the only one that this is happening to there is such a sense of isolation. And I talk with patients all the time who are like, I have to be the only one whose body didn't bounce back like this or who's struggling with their body image or whose relationship is going through some stress right now because of intimacy, anxiety, and issues, right? Like all of that changes after certainly giving birth, but also in menopause as well, a lot of that changes. And so I think hopefully hopefully they will have someone, whether it's a doctor or a friend or listening to this, that helps them realize that they are not alone, that this happens is completely normal. And there are specialists and clinicians and doctors out there who are absolutely happy to spend as much time as you want answering all of your questions. Um, and don't be afraid to shop around. Um, right. I give this advice to my patients all the time. Um, like please shop around if it comes to like a therapist in particular, but just doctors in general, if you don't feel like you're clicking with someone and you don't feel comfortable talking about 
all of these thoughts that you may be having, all of these things that you may be doing, then that's not a right fit. Um, doctors, even medical doctors, not just mental health doctors, um, can only help you as much as you are willing to communicate with them about some of your experiences. If you don't tell someone you're in pain, we can't tell. Um, and so please, please, please don't be afraid to shop around and, until you find someone that you feel like you can be honest and open with. Love that. Yeah, that's, it's so true. And it's, it's not a bad thing to look around for no. a second opinion, a third opinion. I think it's just so important to yeah. find someone you feel absolutely comfortable with. Um, and it's, it's harder and harder because I think a lot of, you might get, you feel defeated after one or two and you feel like, oh, it's just, maybe there are no good doctors, but there are, they're few and far between, but they are out there and they are specialized to work on, on this area. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely agree and think um, it's something that we need to do a better job of just as a field of increasing access to care and treatment and training, exactly. and educating not just patients, but also educating other healthcare professionals um, mm-hmm. so that everybody's kind of on the lookout for some of this stuff and, and can help point people in the right direction. Right, right, exactly. This was so much fun. Thank you so much, Katie, for for coming on and sharing all of your wonderful insights, your research. I'm so excited for you to to come up here to DC and begin your next chapter. Um, And this was just such a wonderful time to hear about everything that you're doing. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much for having me again. I I had a lot of fun and it it was so much fun talking with you about all of this stuff because I talk about this all the time with my lab mates but they probably get tired of of talking with me about it so it's I'm always happy to talk more about this but um yes I would love to to get together with you in, in DC when I move up there in the fall And that's a wrap on another episode of Picture Perfect. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to follow us on social media. And if you can, please be sure to give us a rating, a review, and subscribe to the podcast because that really helps elevate the podcast so other people can find out about us and really enjoy all of the wonderful things that this podcast has to offer. I just love meeting new people and I love hearing from you as listeners. Remember that I will include all of the papers and the references that we talk about in the podcast in the episode description. Make sure to click those if you want to learn more about all of soon-to-be Dr. Katie Thompson's work. So excited for her, and she's really just doing some incredible things. So can't wait to see what she does next. And that's pretty much all I have. I'm always going to close by trying to lend a word of encouragement. And wherever you are in your life, in the middle of the week, at the end of the week, the beginning of the week, uh, please remember to just kind of breathe and take some time to remember you and your worth and just how much you matter to me, if, if, that's, if that's any consolation, how much you matter to me and to this world. I know it can be really hard and all of the mixed messages that you see can be really triggering. Triggering. I can't talk today, <laughs> quite frankly. I went to the dentist just you know this week and my dental hygienist was talking, we were talking about the pandemic and how it's still a little bit scary. And and she had said, well, you know, I haven't gotten COVID yet, but even if I did, I wouldn't mind the loss of, of smell and taste because it, it'll make me eat less. And she starts laughing and I'm just, and she kind of looks at me because I'm not laughing. And she was like, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a really harmful thing to say, especially for people that struggle with an eating disorder and, and that kind of like kill the mood, of course, but granted, she's not one with like a drill in my mouth. So it was just a routine cleaning. If if, if I was going in for a root canal, I might've thought about my word choices differently. (laughs) But anyways, um, that was, I just want to like get that message out there because I think we kind of say it flippantly without even thinking about it. And it can be really harmful. And I probably do it too on things that are not related to eating and, and body image. And I really just try to encourage you to be mindful of that and and where others' experiences and feelings are to make sure that you're just being inclusive in in what your your words are. So um, just a little fun tidbit on on my my life this week as I'm trying to get back into the swing of things following vacation. Um, But 
all of that to say, you know, it's been, it's been hard for me. And I, I come in and out of like these moments of like, oh, I should cut back or I'm eating too much. And it's just, I've got to like kick that voice out of my head. It's so hard. And we're always taught like less is more, less is more. And that only applies to makeup. I will say <laughs> like, you know, some people just kind of cake on the foundation. It's like, yeah, your neck does not match the color of your face. Uh, but when it comes to everything else, you know, less less is not necessarily more. So, you know, no matter what the size of your clothing and or what the scale says, and just don't throw that thing out. And all of the standards that our world is trying to tell us, they're completely unrealistic and unattainable. And that's just not what beauty actually is. And we should really emphasize things like love and compassion and encouraging and lifting other people up. And I want to see more of that in the world. And I hope I can kind of be that beacon, if you will, through this podcast and through all of the wonderful people I meet through this podcast. So I hope that's a little bit of encouragement wherever you are. If you're you're feeling good or if you're not feeling so good, you know, my thoughts are with you. And I hope that you will come back and listen to another episode of Picture Perfect. Have a great week.